Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's Sparks and Honey Culture Briefing. I'm Davion Harris, and I'm thrilled that you're here with us as we kick off the first of a three-part series to honor Black History Month. Each week, we'll be bringing in special guests to discuss various topics, exploring the intersections of diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture, and industry transformation. Today, we'll be discussing the future of health equity and ways that organizations can make strides in addressing systemic barriers to change. I'm joined by my co-briefer, Sparks and Honey cultural strategist, Debra Velasquez, as well as our two esteemed guests and health equity advocates. So first, I'd like to introduce Renee Seiler. Renee is a sought-after commentator for CNN Headline News, The Today Show, and The Doctors. She's hosted Sweet Retreats, which highlights vacation homes for rent, airing on the Live Well Network. Renee has also spent several seasons as host of Exhale on Magic Johnson's Aspire Network. Renee is the daughter of two breast cancer survivors. Her parents' diagnoses and her own precancerous condition led to her preventative mastectomy in 2007, a surgery that was profiled on the Oprah Winfrey Show. That experience also ignited her passion as she now travels the country as an ambassador for Susan G. Komen for The Cure, spreading the word about early detection and treatment of the disease. Renee was also awarded the prestigious Gracie Allen Award for her television series on breast cancer. When not traveling, Renee spends her time soaking up the sea and sun at her home on Kiowa Island, South Carolina. Welcome, Renee. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And next, we have Antonio Mello. Antonio is a self-taught interdisciplinary creative, a proven applied innovation leader, and digital transformation executive. His creativity comes from standing at the intersection of the humanities and technology. Rather than attempting to predict the future, he creates it. With an emphasis on learning, he serves as a founder, organizational designer, and executive leader of Humana's Digital Health and Analytics Experience Center, a multidisciplinary, human-centered, applied innovation incubator and delivery accelerator. He serves as the founder, designer, and executive leader of the Experience Center Academy, a software engineering boot camp focused on addressing systemic racism by open source working methods and investing in Black and Latinx learners interested in participating in an equitable and ethical human-centered digital economy. He's an executive sponsor of Humana's Enterprise Diversity and Inclusion Initiative and a leader of the company's multicultural strategies. Welcome, Antonio. Thanks for being with us. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. Amazing. So let's dive in. We have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So. <laughs> Health equity has become a central topic of discussion, particularly since the onset of the pandemic when it became clear that Black and Hispanic groups in particular were disproportionately being affected by the virus and the subsequent financial, emotional, and socioeconomic effects. And as we know though, health inequities didn't begin in 2020. And even when socioeconomic status is not a factor, Black Americans disproportionately receive subpar care and die from diseases compared to their white counterparts. African Americans have the highest mortality rate of any racial and ethnic group for all cancers combined and of most major cancers. Across the US, Black women have a significantly higher chance than white women of dying from cervical cancer. And the mortality rate is more than twice as high for Black women as that of white women, a rate similar to women living in developing countries with poor healthcare access. We also have heard many stats around the fact that Black women are three times more likely to die from complications of childbirth than white women in the US. And so, Renee, I want to start with you and your story. Uh, you talk about, you know, you're a, a daughter of parents affected by cancer. You have your own healthcare challenges that you've faced. Uh, and so you've witnessed firsthand the inequities of our healthcare system. So I'm curious, how do you feel being a Black woman has defined uh, your experience in navigating our healthcare system? Um, you know, it's um, really shocking sometimes to think that it's now 2022 and we are still battling these really basic challenges. Um, you know, I've always, as, as you said, you know, my mother and father both had breast cancer. My mother was kind of a, um, a pioneer with regard to 
health. You know, she was always drinking, talking to us about drinking aloe vera juice and, and like we were eating uh, meat-free meals before it was popular and all of that kind of thing. And it's funny to look back on now because I'm talking about like the seventies, but um, she really knew a lot about what was going on. But the biggest thing that um, I got from her was how to be an advocate for your own health. And you can't advocate if you don't know. And so what's important to me and has always been important is to use my platform to not only my, educate myself, but to talk about it, um, to talk openly, honestly, um, often about it so that Black women um, understand that certain things don't mean that you're going to die. You know, I can remember I did a lot of public speaking with, with um, Komen for the Cure and a woman came up to me once and she said, you know, I had uh, my mother and grandmother, mother and grandmother died of breast cancer and I'm too afraid to go find out. I'm too afraid to find out if I, and I was like, what? Because my point to her was, we know the outcome if you don't find out, mm -hmm. but if you find out early, and that's really what we're talking about is getting the information early so that you can then make decisions and that will have a positive uh, out, uh, effect on the, on the outcome. That's really what we need to be talking about. Education uh, and then making sure um, the access, the barriers to access are removed. Absolutely. And Antonio, I mean, I want to turn to you with with that because your experience and passion, I mean, is is on the corporate side of this. Um, and you know, as we know, many of the health equity conversations have been centering on action from you know corporations and inaction, right? And so, for you, it's very much about that kind of authentic understanding uh, of patients, really, as individuals with varied cultural identities, barriers, and context around healthcare outcomes, many of which that Renee is speaking to. And so, you know, can you talk to us about why it's so important and considering that holistic picture? Um, you know, access is only one component of it, but as Renee said, the fear, you know, the historic nature of how Black people have been treated in America as it pertains to healthcare and trials and, and so forth. I mean, how, how, do you, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a, I think, a poignant question. And I'll begin by responding by first saying, Renee, that you're uh, uh, sharing your own personal story of your mother and yourself is touching, uh, not equating myself uh, to yourself or your family. My mother is uh, a uh, breast cancer survivor, so it resonates with me in some regard. Um, now, having said that, um, you know, questions of uh, trusting the providers of care, uh, questions of education and access and advocacy are all uh, fundamental and, of course, resonate with me. Um, you know, the organization of which I'm a part right now, Humana, has um, a series of different businesses, the core of which is health benefit plan, health insurance, uh, though, uh, you know, we're in the midst of a broader uh, transformation at scale to really being a care delivery organization. And, you know, in this transitory state, uh, it's not a mystery that uh, one of our greatest opportunities is to try to understand people and in their own, frankly, not only their own context, but in their own habitat. Mm -hmm. And uh, the team that I lead you know, believe it or not, uh, whether or not you're a data scientist or a product designer or a software engineer, um, at the outset of any of our engagements, uh, all of us actually, you know, spend several weeks doing what we call uh, ethnography or design research, which means to say uh, that when we're thinking about designing and developing a service or product, um, that is going to um, help deliver care in some capacity. We um, have a series of different um, people who we work with. Uh, we actually work to be invited into their home 
and we spend a couple of hours with them. And, you know, usually the, the sample of the people with whom we're working and uh, who we're observing uh, is roughly between 30 and 60 people. But uh, the point that I'm getting at is that gaining access, and of course, a lot of this has happened pre-COVID and then during COVID-19, we're using, you know, virtualization and proxies to try to, just as we're doing right now, you can, we can, you know, see each other and we're interacting and, you know, we can see windows into each other's spaces. And, uh, you know, by doing so, you really have people share um, stories of what matters to them in their own terms, in their own home and the richness of information and uh, not really empathy, which I think is overused, but rather, um, you know, human commonalities uh, and compassion that surpass surface level divisions are really very important. Um, and that kind of appreciation for uh, the people, frankly, that we have the honor of serving gets into the DNA of all of our practitioners who ultimately are making design choices that will in some regard impact people's lives. And so it really, uh, I can't overemphasize the importance of that kind of whole person understanding. And there are other um, practices that we invoke to also get at that, but, um, I just don't really think that you can be a provider of care in any capacity without actually gaining an understanding of people in their own terms. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely wanted to jump in here. I, I, we had a previous conversation, all of us, and this re definitely resonates with me as well. Just um, Renee, you being on, you know, the advocate side of things, and then Antonio, you being a provider of space for advocates. I think that both roles are integral and, and uh, you know, necessary for conversations like these in terms of moving the dial forward, you know, creating these bridges. Um, to your point, Renee, earlier, of, you know, there's, there are so many barriers that exist and like, how can we, how can we knock those barriers down and create bridges from those barriers? So this first signal um, touches sort of on, on the, access um, part of it that you brought up, Antonio. Uh, this nonprofit in New York City is called Upsolve, and it's uh, a pastor uh, and Upsolve are coming together to file a lawsuit um, against the state attorney general's office in an effort to allow people to receive free legal advice over debt collections, including medical debt, um, according to court documents. And as it is illegal in New York for non-lawyers to give legal advice, Absolve has filed its lawsuit hoping for a declaration that laws governing the unauthorized practice of law do not apply to its American justice program, which Absolve intends to operate to train professionals who are not lawyers on providing free legal advice about debt collection in particular. Um, Upsolve said in, a law, in the lawsuit that the laws governing unauthorized legal practice mean that many low-income New Yorkers must fend for themselves um, and argue that applying those laws to the American Justice Program would be a violation of the First Amendment's protection of free speech um, as it pertains to this conversation and health equity and the future of health equity. Antonio, I want to uh, ask you this question. So uh, according to the signal and according to a recent survey by Discover Personal Loans, currently three in four Americans owe more than $2,000 in medical debt. And this number disproportionately hurts Black Americans. Um, do you think programs are, what do you think is the benefit of uh, certain programs and organizations? I know that you have an institute that um, directly, you know, works to make a positive impact in this space. Um, what is the benefit here and, and what should they ent entail from an organizational standpoint in order to solve for health inequities that currently exist? Yeah, that's an interesting and complicated question. I appreciate that. I think that, um, you know, when, when we think about whole person health, uh, of course, um, you know, not only questions of um, 
education or finances are involved, but really a, a broader series of things. And so I, I really appreciate uh, that question from that broader perspective. Um, and, you know, truth be told that, uh, you know, and, you know, I'll have to, for one moment, you know, speak not on behalf of the organization that employs me, but just as an individual, which means to say, um, you know, I think that we're early on as it, um, we're, we're in a nascent phase as it relates to like this journey of really addressing, defining, and then making investments towards uh, how health equity will show up in the United States and not only in, in large private institutions like Humana, but just also in policy. And, you know, really what I'm thinking about is um, not everything is equal. Not everyone uh, has equal access to education or the ability to gain, uh, you know, gainful employment. And of course, the uh, cost of healthcare um, is, you know, frankly, a deterrent. And I think when we, for a minute, reconsider, you know, the first signal and the uh, uh, conversation about, um, you know, maybe not all women who uh, get cancer are taking advantage of some preventative care because it's cost prohibitive. And why is it cost prohibitive? Well, you know, what access do they have to really gain into uh, the the economy well it's unequal to other people for from uh, who are not of color and so now swinging back to the question of the moment um, I think that uh, frankly you know when you think about something like Medicare Advantage and health benefit plans and then private uh, you know Medicare plans like Humana and others do offer, you know, we may get to a place where uh, we would seriously have to consider that, you know, not as not all health is equal and not all um, access is equal and not all finances are equal, is there policy and or variability of the health benefit plan and then the uh, risk and cost sharing that people enter into with organizations, whether it is the federal government? Um, or private companies like Humana. And, you know, really what I'm thinking about is uh, just variability, knowing that things are not equivalent across all segments of the population. That would be my initial response. And I think what you're, you're also pointing to, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, all of the various factors outside of healthcare, you know, and the physicality uh, of it, um, but you bring up policy. I mean, we're kind of circling around issues of, of mental health as well, and the impact that, you know, these issues ha uh, have on hold. And I think, you know, Renee, you brought up this idea of fear and that preventing, you know, women uh, in particular, but really across the board from going to the doctor, seeking kind of, you know, that preventative care or even knowing something's wrong, but not wanting to really know, um, but also doubt. I mean, how many I, I know from personal experience and, and friends who have gone to their doctor who and have been told that it's nothing right or or they're imagining something and then only to find that it was an issue. So, I mean, that's also another big component of it. And so. I want to, you know, ask you, um, you know, something that stuck with me about your story was that when you were going um, for those preventative measures, the issue of, of data was a problem because they, the doctors couldn't even identify, you know, in, with certainty, um, what kind of um, potential cancer, breast cancer you were at risk for because there weren't enough black women in the pool to even look at um, the possibilities there. So, you know, considering all of this, I think, you know, so many of the conversations around health equity, you know, can focus on access in very simplistic terms, but we're not addressing those deeper and broader issues around education, self-advocacy, and then even just the kind of system level of care. Um, and so can you speak to some of those challenges and looking ahead, kind of what you see as, as necessary to combat all of these various um, intersectional and, and broader issues as uh, it pertains to health equity? Yeah, so I'll 
step back for a second and just um, tell that quick story is yeah. that um, prior to my, my breast health story is that I had two parents who had breast cancer, mother and father. And a lot of people, when you say that, they're like, what, your dad had breast cancer? And um, they don't understand that men can and do get breast cancer. And when men get breast cancer, there tends to be a genetic component at play because men shouldn't be getting breast cancer because they don't have estrogen. They don't have the hormones in the levels um, that women do. This is all from my, per my doctors. So when my, um, uh, when I would say that I had a mother and father with breast cancer, they would always be like, wait, what? Um, and so when I started having um, a lot of my own sort of issues, I was having to go in obviously for um, mammograms um, yearly. And um, then the mammograms would always come back as sort of, you know, off a little bit. And so I ended up having four biopsies in total. Two were stereotactic or needle core needle biopsies, and then two were surgical biopsies. But after that, you know, I mean, I kind of was like, is this the life that I imagined for myself? And I was very empowered um, to, I had a great uh, medical team. I had great health insurance. Um, and I educated myself on, on, you know, the, the options that were out there for me. Um, and at that time, there was the possibility of, do I take tamoxifen as a preventive? Because that was one of the big things back then. I don't know if you guys remember that, but we're talking, you know, 2007, 2006. And that was one of the ways they were looking at keeping women who were at high risk from getting breast cancer was the tamoxifen. Um, but then there were these, tamo taking tamoxifen was gonna bring up all these potential other issues. And so I had opted, talked to my doctor and we had opted for a preventive mastectomy. So that's the, the backstory. But prior to the preventive mastectomy, I did genetic testing. Um, and the genetic testing was, um, you know, it was a very, it was like standing at the precipice because you were going to have this blood drawn and then you're going to have this data, this information. And then you had to make a decision. Like, were you going to go ahead and have your breast removed? Were you going to do watchful waiting or, you know, what was what, but if you were going to go ahead and do this, this test, you wouldn't do the test and not, not make a decision. You know what I mean? Cause otherwise it's just a waste. So I was hoping to have real answers after the genetic test and the, the genetic, geneticist sat me down and said, listen, I just want to tell you that right now we do not have a lot of black women in the pool of data to, from which to choose and from which to sort of, of, of figure out what's going on in your body. Do you still want to do this? And I said, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and do it. So we did. And he said, you can come back BRCA positive, BRCA negative, or undetermined variant. And of course, the undetermined variant is what I came back with. So basically, it was still a big old question mark. And that was because there just wasn't enough, um, there weren't enough African-American women in the pool it, that had, had the testing um, to be able to compare my results to theirs. There was no roadmap. Um, and so I felt like it was sort of my um, duty to go ahead and do this, to be one of those people in the pool, one of these black women in the pool, even though it was hard for me because I didn't find out until 10 years later that I actually wasn't at risk for that this inexplicable whatever thing that was going on did not put me at increased risk, but I didn't find out for a decade because that's how long it took to get enough black women in the pool. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I, I you know, I'm trying to remember, um, there's a, um, I think it's out of, it's in Indiana somewhere, but there's an actual um, uh, organization, a hospital that is actually taking healthy women's breast tissue and using that to create a database as well. And that stuff is so important, particularly for women of color. Um, and so, yeah, that's to, to speak to um, your point, Davian, that, that that's, that's the story was that that kind of question marks still remain because there just weren't enough of us 
um, in the in the pool. And so I'd like to see that change. And in order for that to change, I believe there's a real stigma that we have to overcome. We have the the shadow of Tuskegee is still um, looms large. And I think that there's a real mistrust of the medical establishment by many um, people of color. And, you know, when you come and find out that there were, uh, you know, for many, many years, doctors would say, well, black women don't feel pain the same way. Uh, why this is stuff that were was going on until recently. Serena Williams, the, you know, one of the biggest names on the planet, you know, almost died during childbirth. And the mortality rate for, for black women giving birth, it's just those things should not be happening in, the, in this day and age. And so I approach it from an educational standpoint. I talk, I talk, I talk. Antonio's got more, maybe he has more pull and muscle in the places where I, I don't, but I just, um, yeah, I'm just astounded that we're still dealing with these things at this date. I really appreciate you sharing all of that. And if I may uh, build upon that, I'd like to. Um, and, you know, I'll invoke uh, President Biden, but not as a political tactic whatsoever. Uh, in the following context, rather, which is, um, you know, what you're talking about, Renee, where the scope of a, of a, people who are frankly receiving care, and then secondarily where there's data attributable to them, whether it is clinical data or otherwise, and the lack of that data, and then, you know, providers, providers of care, excuse me, frankly, not being knowledgeable enough or having like unequal bodies of knowledge upon which to make decisions for people, um, you know, that definitely, uh, is something that now bringing uh, President Biden's name back in is something that his administration and frankly before him, President Trump's administration was seeking to advance, which is this notion of data interoperability, which are standards through which data is exchanged, um, you know, from uh, EMRs or, or hospitals or hospital networks to payers. And frankly, the data that is uh, attributable to a patient ultimately is the intellectual property of that person, of that patient. Um, and the reason that it's really timely is, um, you know, this morning there was a product manager on my team who brought to my attention that the Office of the National Coordinator in DC is looking as we speak for partners uh, using interoperable standards to um, try to address the maternal uh, uh, journey for Black and Latinx mothers. And it is a new experiment. And our team, like, like I said, literally are discussing it this morning. And, you know, um, of course, overdue, but I think that the good news is that, again, thinking about um, policy and, um, you know, contemporary uh, data exchanges that are standardized using APIs, et cetera, all of these things are finally coming together and then being applied to help level the playing field for in this case, black and Latinx mothers, so that hopefully there will be future generations of people who won't have the same kind of experience that your family, that, that you, know, you, that others are frankly just accustomed to. I think another thing at play, you know, from as far as medical professionals are concerned is that there's a lot of implicit bias that's involved and yes. a lot of personal biases that get in the way of, uh, you know, practitioners and medical professionals wanting to, you know, having the desire to help out people who don't look like them. Um, and, but that's something that, you know, data, there's data and there are, you know, there's research that suggests that, but that's also hard to prove. Um, so I want to, you know, split this into two questions for 
each of you. Um, Renee, as a patient, what would you like to see um, in terms of empathy in, in the room, in the, you know, while you're receiving care, what would you like to see as far as transparency, empathy, et cetera? And then Antonio, you know, from an organizational standpoint, what would you suggest leaders should keep in mind at, at all levels on the other side of the token for making sure that they put forth, they put aside their, their biases and they really are tackling the issue at hand? Well, in terms of empathy, so I've, I've gone through some experiences just very recently. Um, uh, my mother recently passed away and she had dementia. And so my sister and I were dealing with all kinds of um, people, medical professionals, that kind of thing. And, and, and in every case with a medical professional, practically every case I've dealt with, there is this, um, they're like, sort of trust me, I've done this before, you know, and, and they have, but I always wanted to say, yeah, but this is my first rodeo. <laughs> this literally is my first rodeo. Um, I've never had a baby before. So I remember my, my uh, OB was like, ah, oh, don't worry. Uh, oh, I, I deliver 20 babies a day. Okay. But I'm delivering one. <laughs> and so I need you to answer my questions and don't talk to me like I'm an idiot. Um, I had a, an Italian trained doctor uh, when my, uh, um, when I was going through the issues with my breast and he was, I don't know if it was because he was Italian and, and trained um, in a different country, but he was the best doctor I'd ever had. He would come in, he had a very, um, he had this lilting way of speaking and he would be like, hello, Renee. And he was just so, he was, it was like being enveloped by a warm blanket. And it was good because prior to him, I had had an experience with this really great hotshot doctor in New York and blah, blah, blah. And when I saw him, he said, um, I started to cry when I first met him because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm scared. And I started to cry and he was like, well, I don't know. What are you crying about? What, there's nothing to cry about here. And I was like, mm -hmm. so after that meeting, I, I got my films. I literally bet you guys, this is many, many years ago, but I was, I got my films from the hospital, my, um, um, uh, my uh, uh, mammograms under my arm, these huge folders under my arm. And I marched out of there because I was like, oh no, you're, this is not team Siler. You're not going to be on team Siler. You're not going to talk to me that way and expect, you know, to be on team Siler. And that's the kind of thing that I want women, black women to understand that you can do that. You can walk out. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to be there with somebody who's not respecting you or who's not listening to you or who's not validating your concerns. Yeah, please. There are many, many choices. So just girl, get you your films and get out. And that's exactly what I did. I love that, Renee. <laughs> I, that, that's, that's so important though, because so many, as you said, black women feel like they need to stay, they need to fight their case. And if they can't, then that's it. Um, so that that's so critical. Yeah, it was great. It was like, I, I look back on it now and I feel like if this were a movie, this would be where the music swells and, she, and the protagonist, you know, was walking down 57th street with her mammograms under her arm and the, ooh, that's exactly what it was like. Um, but I just couldn't be, I couldn't be in that position in the most vulnerable place and time in my life mm -hmm. and have this guy who wasn't really, didn't care. Or didn't seem like he cared. Antonio, I don't know if you have any thoughts in terms of the initial question around kind of what's, you know, what's next? How do we, we take that forward in terms of empathy to action on, on the kind of corporate aspect? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of uh, opportunities there and, and, you know, really um, first and foremost, um, you know, we could begin to consider it in terms of representation or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about today, perhaps, 
Um, there is a disproportionate amount of, say, people of color who are seeking care when compared to uh, people of color who are providing care. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that, uh, and, and I can talk briefly about our team in a second, but just broadly speaking, you know, what sort of um, strategies or incentives um, or programs uh, are there to uh, help uh, people of color get into um, formal, um, you know, academic institutions to become healthcare professionals? And I'm not speaking about you know, people uh, like me, but I'm in, in my mind, I'm thinking about physicians or I'm thinking about nurses, et cetera. And, uh, and, and the reason that I think about that primarily is uh, the notion that people feel comfortable when they see someone on the other side um, of the desk who, you know, maybe looks like them or speaks like them, or maybe they have an experience in common, or maybe they also, you know, perhaps grew up in a, in a religious tradition in common or something. And um, because, you know, as a patient, it can be quite scary. You're, you know, you're putting your life in the hands of uh, a stranger and, you know, any, any sort of uh, familiarity or way to relate to that person actually uh, can be quite effective and, and can be helpful to establishing that trust and that relationship so that if you are frightened and or you don't understand what the physician is saying that often that occurs you know it's like I yeah I, I didn't study this I don't really understand what you're talking about but um, you know when you're seeing 20 patients a day and uh, you know they're just in some cases, perhaps not really treating you uh, with dignity or with respect or just treating you like as a human or humanely, you know, that, that familiarity can then, uh, I think, ease the burden and allow people uh, comfort to just pose questions, perhaps. So that's just one yeah. thought. You know, the other thing that um, definitely that I think about, and now I will speak on behalf of, you know, my team, uh, because we do invoke these methods, like in, in addition to things like the Experience Center Academy, where we're open sourcing the way that we work and investing in, uh, you know, curious uh, people who also want to work along our side. One reason that we think that that is uh, fundamental, of which there are many reasons, but it is about because, you know, we have an ambition to be a, truth be told, a multicultural first organization. And to do so, then we have to be sincere about not only inviting or welcoming, but investing in uh, people of all different sorts so that our organization is multicultural, our organization is diverse in a variety of different capacities. Again, so that when we are making decisions about services or products um, that in part help to deliver healthcare, that it's not a you know, uniform, one size fits all sort of approach that frankly, traditionally is you know, serving a white population who has been in power because um, you know, whether we're talking about uh, you know, black people or Asian people, whatever the case may be, um, there are some real distinct uh, differences amongst those people that must be not only understood, but taken into account. And I'm not gonna pretend to be able to do that. You know, even though I'm a first uh, you know, generation Colombian, both of my parents are Colombian, um, you know, I'm not gonna pretend that my experiences uh, you know, is an example like Renee's, but I definitely uh, have a host of uh, Black people who are my colleagues, who are on my team, who we bring to bear, who we hope can help us uh, do well by Renee and do well by people like Renee. And, and frankly, the more the merrier, you know, multiculturalism, uh, 
you know, is it must be a first class citizen to any organization who, in my opinion, seeks to be relevant and um, valuable as we continue to take around in the 21st century. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you touched on so many themes there. I mean, between the importance of representation, but also kind of meeting people where they are, um, you know, whether that's through other humans and providers and, you know, you know, meeting uh, the needs of individuals. Um, but also it, it brings to mind, uh, there's, there's a signal in an article um, from Forbes from last month that was highlighting a tech entrepreneur, uh, Jalissa Johnson. And she's a community organizer. Um, she's been working on ways to empower communities, particularly black communities as it pertains to healthcare and actually created um, a solution, a virtual emerging technology solution um, to respond to specific issues around uneven healthcare access and incomplete data collection. Um, many of the themes that we were just talking about and she actually called it a hospital without walls. And so on various levels, whether it's, you know, bringing uh, healthcare to communities, rural communities or urban communities where there might be lower levels of, of care or you know, preventing individuals from having to go to the emergency room for basic um, healthcare needs, but also kind of taking away that black box um, effect that health data um, people often find in terms of their data and really empowering people to own their data own, you know, an understanding of what they've been through, the kinds of conditions they might be at risk for um, that they either might not know or might not even know to go or, you know, where to go to ask for it. And so I think it's really interesting in, in um, looking at the role of technology. And as we look ahead, I mean, there's obviously a lot uh, that we need to overcome as a society and kind of breaking down these systemic barriers and understanding even, you know, at its core, what we're, we're up against. But, you know, curious how you all are, are, are thinking about technology in particular, um, obviously funding, and that was a big part of the story, is a big component of this story in terms of entrepreneurs and investment, um, which Antonio you spoke to. Um, so, you know, my question is, as we look ahead, um, considering how and what progress could look like, you know, what do we need to consider? Um, what is the role of technology in, in driving health equity? Uh, so, Antonio, love your thoughts and kind of building upon what you were saying and the work you're doing in the Experience Center. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's uh, fascinating uh, work that you just mentioned. And, um, you know, it does resonate with me. And I, I'll sidestep the Experience Center portion of the question for a moment. And, um, you know, the, the example and, and the signal, it just, you know, in my mind, it harkens uh, towards an opportunity of, frankly, establishing a, a host of different um, digital health incubators whose focus are to really um, help, frankly, uh, not only support discrete um, founders, uh, like the person that you just mentioned, but but I think of equal importance is uh, creating a network effect by incubating like a host of different uh, digital health startups uh, for founders, um, where the founders are people of color and then bringing them together as a community and getting some concentration and some economy of scale uh, through that. Now, I, I, you know, I don't have a specific example that comes to mind, but you know, your, your question um, really just is um, like, just brought that idea to, to the forefront. Now, um, you know, having said that, um, the Experience Center does not act as a, you know, uh, incubator, as I've just stated, though um, what we do do is, on behalf of Humana, because uh, the Experience Center acts as frankly, the tip of the spear of modernization for the company. And we believe that multiculturalism and getting uh, diversity in the organization is fundamental. What we've been doing for years is acting as that front door for that purpose, 
bringing associates, uh, people of color in as associates, investing in them uh, for a, a number of years, and then uh, mentoring them as leaders and then distributing them to other aspects of the business as they grow and get other career uh, ascension and opportunities. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one way that we are, um, you know, trying to address some of the systemic uh, aspects of what you bring with your question. Though admittedly, uh, I'm not addressing the crux of the question as you posed it well, because I, I just don't have a very good response to it. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, Renee, to kind of close us out here, I mean, we started on this issue of, you know, thinking about access and what is required as we think about that patient journey, um, you know, understanding your own story, your own data points, uh, you know, of your community, what you're at risk for, and just that sense of education and awareness. And so I'm curious your thoughts, you know, if, if we were to kind of progress in this way and really understanding the role of technology in terms of providing that sense of, of data um, information, what that could do um, for experiences that you might have had, the experiences you kind of alluded to as you go back to those women that, you know, said they didn't want to know um, or kind of were afraid to know or might not know where to even go to understand what they were kind of up against. So curious your thoughts on that. Um, you know, a lot has happened since I had gone through my uh, initial experience um, that was back in 2006, 2007. One of the things that I'm, and I know you guys, maybe Antonio is talking about more high level technology, but from a patient standpoint, um, I have enjoyed recently working with doctors that I can have all of my information, my test results, uh, all of that stuff comes, you know, right to my device. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds you know, kind of, perhaps maybe that's not a big deal, but it's a big deal to me because I'm busy. Everybody's busy. And so I don't want to have to be calling and leaving messages and, and that sort of thing. You know, I, I was just recently diagnosed with um, type two diabetes. So I can talk to my provider about, um, you know, my numbers. I have the test results. They come right to me. I can see what the changes that I need to make. Um, you know, the, the, um, the actual device that I use, um, of course, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, one touch <laughs> um, for, to test my blood sugar that integrates seamlessly with my, with my phone. So I get real-time data and real-time information. And th the ultimate goal here is for me to live a long, happy, and healthy life. And so I have to do my part and in order for me to do my part, I need the information. So I'm, I'm doing what I can with regard to knowledge. And then I need to know what's happening systemically here. And what is my doctor saying? And I love having it all in a place where I can see it and I can make changes, you know, very quickly and rapidly. And I feel great as a result. I feel in control. And I believe that that is really what we need as a patient, the patient needs to be empowered. They need to be empowered to make the proper decisions and choices. They need, they need to be empowered to leave a provider if the provider is not doing right by them. They need to be a party to their own healthcare and, and feel like they are as important as is the provider. Yeah, I mean, building on that, you know, something that we, uh, consider often is, um, you know, because frankly, right now, the experience of navigating the healthcare system has the provider of care at the center. Mm -hmm. Everything is very mindful about their time and their expertise, and it re really revolves around that. And, you know, um, you know, one thing uh, that Renee and I have in common, and again, something that we discuss is um, about designing a patient-centered healthcare experience and using digital and analytics as a mechanism to invert that equation. Now, digital and analytics alone won't solve it, but you know, I think that Renee's 
testimony is indicative of you know what is to come and and um, and, and, you know, what we've seen with COVID-19 especially is the application of consumer technology to healthcare because we've all been, well, in, in some capacity, we've been, you know, sheltering in place and isolated and things are decentralized and virtualized. Now, additionally, I think, uh, yes, technology has an incredible role to achieve that patient-first or patient-centered healthcare experience. Um, when I think about people of color also, um, you know, then it's also a question of, you know, access and distribution and trust. And frankly, you know, how, how can you get uh, consumer technology in the hands of people who maybe don't have the finances uh, to, to afford that, what I will call that contemporary ease of use. And, um, you know, again, that uh, begs a, a host of other fundamental questions. Um, nonetheless, uh, I, I do think, Renee, that you are providing a perspective of, you know, for some people where things are, and frankly, where things should be headed for all. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I couldn't agree more on the, the aspect of empowerment and control ultimately is what we're trying to get to um, as we think about that patient-centered uh, experience that all organizations, whether in the healthcare space or not, um, really need to be focused on. So I wanna thank you, our incredible panelists for joining us, Renee, Antonio, thank you for your insights, your time. Um, really appreciate all the work that you're doing and your respective fields. Um, Devery, thank you for joining me on this uh, briefing today and for all of you for tuning in. So we'll be back next week with more briefings per usual, including the second part to our Black History Month series. We'll be talking about the future of inclusive content uh, featuring CJ Hunt, who's a producer of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. We'll have Kamala Abila-Selman, who is head of inclusive content for Lionsgate Entertainment. So be sure to tune in for that as well. Until then, consider yourself briefed.